I'll give you all fair warning. Uh, this is going to be a scripturally rich sermon, um, and that's just unavoidable because of the nature of what we're dealing with. So, if you are a note taker, I would advise you, um, the way, my biggest challenge this week, honestly, was figuring out how to structure all this information. And uh, I want to make sure we understand this issue, because it's, it was the issue of the day, and it's still the issue of the day. Nothing's changed in that sense. This is part two, although I didn't write it up there, of last week's sermon, where we are going to consider specifically the law versus grace. And I was going to tell you, if you're a note taker, you might do well to uh, take pictures of my slides, because the way I did it is, uh, is I, I organized the material under questions to ask, um, I think that was the best, most effective way to, to try and organize it to where it's not overwhelming, yet we can follow it. And so I actually have, when we get to the heart of this, there's going to be 11 questions um, we look at with many scriptures. And what I've done is I ask the question, I answer it, and I put the scripture references there for you, and I will read the scripture references so that we don't have to take time to turn back and forth. But if you take pictures of the slides, you'll have the same scripture references I'll be reading to you. You can take it home. You can study it that way better. You know, I, I, uh, I was going to joke with you all, but I didn't want to offend you because you're not really this situation. But the writer of Hebrews said to his audience, he said, you know, I've got a lot of things to tell you, and they're hard to explain, but you're not able to take it because you're dull of hearing. And I thought, you know, our group's not dull of hearing, so I don't want to quote that verse. But this is hard to explain, and it's just the way it is. So brace yourself. I gave you forewarning. I, I hope this does challenge us to dig deeper because there's really large portions of the New Testament that you will just not understand if we don't look at this. The entire letter of Galatians, the entire book of Hebrews, for instance, uh, Romans 4, uh, Romans 3 through 7, really, you won't understand. Um, there's just First Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians three. There's so many passages that we're going to look at that don't make sense without knowledge of this issue. So we're going to take time to make sure we get it. All right. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help me, and uh, then we'll get into it. Father, I do just ask real quickly that Your Spirit, who is the author of life, who is the communicator of the life of Christ for us and who by the appropriating faith that we have, you communicate these truths. Father, teach us. These are difficult things. But make us like the Bereans, where we have a hunger to know answers and we are willing to dive into areas of theology and doctrine that we may have never done before, but Father, we see necessary to do. Above all, Lord, keep our hearts from being apathetic to this. Because it's so important. So much of the New Testament that's been passed on deals with this issue. And we need to understand it. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace or the yoke. That is really what's before us today. We're going to try to cover Acts 15, verses 7 through 35, believe it or not. We'll see how we do. So let's read. I want to read with you Acts 7. 
through verse 11 to begin. And we're going to move rather quickly through these first points, okay? Acts 7, or Acts 15, 7, I apologize. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, as a refresher. Paul and Barnabas got in no small dissension while they were at Antioch with men who had come down to the church and began teaching that you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if you are to be saved. What they had in mind was that these Gentile Christians who have no, uh, no place in the covenants in their mind can't just come to faith in Jesus and get everything that we get as Jews. They have to first become Jews, and then they can become Christians. The Jews in that day really saw Judaism as the culmination of the gospel. And that's something entirely different than what Jesus had in mind. And so there's, an, there's a division here. Do the, do the Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus have to first conform to Judaism before they can be saved? And that conformity to Judaism entirely dealt with the law of Moses. And we're going to talk about what that law is. Paul and Barnabas said, no way. They debated ferociously those men because they'd just been on their mission trip where God worked in the Gentiles, saved them apart from the law. They bore witness to these facts. The church saw fit to send Paul, Barnabas, and the others to Jerusalem in order to settle this doctrinal issue because it had upset them. It had unsettled their mind and their faith. And that's where we left it off last week. In verse 6, the apostles, the elders were gathered together to consider that matter, whether or not it is necessary, there at the end of verse 5, to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So there was much debate, verse 7 says, after there had been much debate. As a quick point, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but it's important that these doctrines debated were settled with debates within the leadership of the apostles and elders, verse 6, right? The church was involved in sending them, but it was the apostles and elders, verse 6, that gathered together to consider this. Now this is a point that I consider as a pastor to be important. may not be as important as some others, but... I don't ever discredit anybody's point of view. I want to listen to everybody. But on the other hand, there's evident maturity in some people and doctrinal understanding in some people that just isn't in others. And so when you're considering difficult issues, by virtue of your understanding, I'm going to give more weight to some than others. And that's what we're, we're seeing here. There was much debate. And I want you to notice that the apostles and elders just let them speak. It's important to hear all sides. You can't make a decision and have knowledge of right and wrong without listening. So there had been much debate before Peter ever opened his mouth. But it said, Peter stood up, 
I did have more points. It's not a democratic political vote. That's, uh, I was going to say that. <laughs> it might offend some churches, but doctrinal issues are not a, a democratic process. Uh, voting is nowhere found in Scripture in that sense. It's, you don't vote on the truth of God. It's revealed, and men who are qualified, spiritually discerned, are said to discern that truth and come to consensus in that way. So Peter gives his two cents. Okay? First, Peter recalls God's choice of himself. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now he's referring back to Acts chapter 10 when he was brought up to Caesarea to go visit Cornelius and his family and friends who'd been gathered together. Cornelius was the Roman centurion. And he'd just been given that vision in Acts 10 of the unclean animals being let down. You remember all that? And he refused to eat and God said, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. And he's referring to the Gentiles. I'm about to open the gospel up to the Gentile world. That division no longer stands. So Peter clearly saw it was by his mouth that God chose to make the gospel known first to the Gentiles, that they should hear the word of the gospel and believe. It's that simple as that second point says. The Gentiles simply heard and believe. If you recall Acts 10, while Peter was still preaching, the text said, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had on the Jews on the day of Pentecost. There was no difference. The Holy Spirit is the guarantor of salvation. And God evidenced that the Gentiles are now included by giving the Holy Spirit just as he had in the same way to the Jews. He was received simply hearing and believing. Moving on, though, in verse 8. It says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did. It's so important to understand that. This was God bearing witness to those people. It's not me having to affirm that I'm a believer. God's saying, I'm affirming you're a believer because I gave you my spirit. It was God's testimony of the Gentiles. That's powerful because if you're going to argue against it, you have to understand you're arguing against God here. It's not my testimony about him. God himself bore witness to them. I don't want to argue with God. I know I'll lose. Verse 9, it goes on and says, He, that is God, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So what Peter summarizes there is, the Gentiles were cleansed on the basis of faith, and the Jews are cleansed on the basis of faith, as opposed to the law. The law never cleansed anyone. We'll see that in a minute. So then Peter concludes in verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And then verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter directly answers the question, do you have to circumcise and order them to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? What's his answer? No. We believe they're saved by grace through faith, just as we Jews are. The law was never meant to save us either. We're going to consider that. We believe they are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as, as we are. So Peter answers it definitely. Well, Paul and Barnabas, in verse 12, 
speak up and give their 10 cents. Now I say, Paul and Barnabas, uh, their testimony counts, I think, a little stronger than Peter's in my mind. Let's read verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Why is Paul and Barnabas' testimony more weighty than Peter's? Well, Peter had one encounter with Cornelius and his family. How many encounters did Paul and Barnabas have of the same kind? Thousands. They witnessed the same thing Peter did thousands of times as they preached in Cyprus and Iconium and Antioch and Lystra and Derbe and all the surrounding region. Everywhere they went, God was working through them miraculously. People were being saved and changed. God was testifying to his grace to them. Paul and Barnabas are saying the same thing Peter did. That's why Luke doesn't really include much. We know what happened. But they saw this happen over and over and over and over and over and over. That's why Paul and Barnabas were so ferocious in defending this truth. No, God has, has testified to this truth. They are saved by grace through faith. They would not back down. So Peter's statement was premised on one encounter with one group. Paul and Barnabas had many, many many encounters. He continually, God continually bore witness to the gospel of grace through faith. And what's so ironic here is keep in mind who most ferociously defended the gospel of free grace by faith. It was Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Right? If there's anyone who once argued that you must keep the law of Moses, it was Saul. And now he's the exact opposite. If there's anyone who's going to argue for the free grace of God, it's Paul. He above all understood the rigors of the law and how we cannot bear it. That Galatians chapter 2 verse 5 through 7 is just a reference to how Paul didn't back down from these men. He would not let them have a foothold in the church. And what he said was, because I wanted to preserve the gospel for you. I didn't want this yoke to be placed back on your neck. So verse 12, Paul and Barnabas relate everything that God had done through the Gentiles. Now verse 13, after they finished speaking, James, this is the half-brother of Jesus. It's not the Apostle James. Remember back in, in Acts 12, the Apostle James, the brother of John, had been martyred by Herod. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, who came to faith after the resurrection of Jesus, he wasn't a believer during the life of Christ. He became one after had rose to prominence in the church. He is the author of the letter in the New Testament, the book of James. It bears his name. So James listens to the debate. He listens to Peter. He listens to Paul and Barnabas. And then he listens to the word. So Peter's two cents counted for something. Paul and Barnabas' ten cents counted for something. But what settles the issue? The word of God does. That's what James turns to. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers... Listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. So there's the experience of it. Verse 15, though. And with this experience, the words of the prophet agree. Just as it is written, and he quotes here, the book of Amos, chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. After this... I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. 
I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So he concludes what Peter has spoken lines up with the word's own testimony. By the way, this is the pattern of how we should deal with anything in the church. This is it. You listen to people. You give ear to them. You listen patiently. What is it that you believe? What is it that you're saying? Let me understand. Let me try to understand the angle you're coming from. This is how we grow as people. Not all of us, or not any one of us, has it all right. We have to develop that humble heart of saying, I want to listen first before speaking. Most of us speak, even if we're silent, we're giving an answer in our mind while someone's saying their position, right? We don't truly listen. I love James here because he listens to it all. And after listening to it all, he's testing it to what the word is saying. He says, Peter, what Peter said in his experience with Cornelius, the word says that's exactly what would happen. And he quotes Amos. There's many passages he could have quoted. Okay? This is how we need to be with one another as a side point. James would later write in his own epistle, be slow to speak, quick to hear. Right? He practiced what he preached. So he quotes Amos in verse 16 and 17, and then he gives his own judgment to the matter. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. I'm going to stop there, and here's where I'm going to jump off to make sure we understand what they're dealing with. Because most of us, I found, don't understand how the Scripture speaks of the law. Okay? And so, I've broke it down into many questions to understand these issues. Okay? Let me get them all up here. First, we're going to ask, what is the law? Second, Is the law bad? And now here's where you can take your picture if that'd be easy for you. Try to keep me out of it, crop me out of it. Who's the law for? What were the terms of the law? It's terms. Why was the law given? How long is the law in force? What's the law's limits? What can it actually do, in other words? Does it make anyone righteous? How does the law relate to the new covenant? Do we still need to keep the law today? And last, we're going to consider the priority. You could say the preeminence of what faith is. So let's answer these questions. What is the law? Now here's, I've given you, like I said, the cross-references. There's many more, honestly. There are so many. Um, I tried to give you what you needed. This is so important to understand. What is the law? The law is one covenant. It was a covenant given through Moses by God. If you remember on Mount Sinai, it was inaugurated with the Ten Commandments. But it didn't stop at the Ten Commandments. There was the priestly laws. If you read the book of Leviticus, 
There was the, uh, the ordinances of sacrifice, the ceremonial aspects of the law. In all, there was over 600 commandments given. So the law is one covenant. Now what we usually do, and what I found even with pastors, is we, we divide up the law and say, well, the, the priestly elements, the ceremonial elements, those don't really apply today, but the Ten Commandments still apply. Now I'm going to answer that for you. They do apply, but not by law. The law, you cannot, and we have no authority to start dicing it up like that. The scripture never does that, and Paul does just the opposite. In the book of Galatians, chapter 5, here's what he said. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that was one commandment, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Not just the Ten Commandments. If you accept circumcision, guess what you've got to do? You've got to perform every single law given perfectly every day forever. You don't have the, the choice to dice it up and say, oh, that doesn't apply today. So what does that mean? Well, the law said don't boil a, a goat in its mother's milk. I don't think we'll have a problem with that. But if you were ever tempted to do that, don't do it. You'd break the law. <laughs> the law says don't wear a garment made of two fabrics. How many of you are guilty of breaking that right now? You're condemned forever. Do you realize that? That's how easy it is, and you're done. It, it, the law said to keep the Passover, Passover every year. It says to circumcise your son on the eighth day. Not only that, the law was a Levitical priesthood, right? The, the tribe of Levi were priests. You have to go to Jerusalem and make sacrifices in Jerusalem at the temple. That's a pretty hard one to keep today, isn't it? Just given there's no temple. You're in trouble. See how difficult the law becomes. What did I say? Five? And they weren't even the moral laws. You are obligated to keep it all. It's one covenant, and we don't have the authority to dice it up and pick and choose. Is the law bad? No. The law's good, right? Despite our sinfulness. Here's what Paul said in Romans 7 and 1 Timothy. In 7, 12, and 14, he says, The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. We know that the law is spiritual, but then he says this, But I'm of the flesh and under sin. So when the law's searchlight looks into my heart, though it's good and righteous and holy, you know what it finds in me? All the opposite. All the opposite. It's not that the law is bad. It's that I'm bad. The law is spiritual. 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says this. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So who was the law for? Paul would go on to say in 1 Timothy 1.8-11. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, for the disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So is the law for righteous people? No. The law is given for bad people. Paul in Galatians 5, 22-23 contrasts the works of the flesh 
with the fruit of the Spirit. You remember that. In verse 22 and 23, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then what's he conclude? Against such things there is no law. When you walk in love, why do you need to walk in law? You don't regulate love. There's no law against being good to someone or being kind or being faithful to your spouse. There's no law against that stuff. You're not under law when you walk in the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's never going to lead you in sin. Ever. And when you walk in the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the law is for people who are unrighteous. That's what the law was given for. What were the terms of the law? Well, it was a covenant of works. This is important. The terms were, if you do this, you shall live. The problem was, there was nothing embedded in the law to help us overcome our flesh. So we can't do it and live. It was a covenant of works. Galatians 3.10, Paul said this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Singular. Again, remember, we don't have the right to dice it up and choose what I'm going to obey. It's everything or nothing. That's the terms. You do this and you will live. By the way, Paul's quoting out of Deuteronomy 27:26 after Moses summarizes the covenant for Israel. That's the conditions and terms of the law set by God. We don't decide them. The law is without mercy and it's inflexible. You must understand that. If you want to place yourself under the law, you better understand its terms. It is without mercy. Tooth for tooth, eye for eye, life for life. Who wants to live under those terms? Not me. What people do who are legalists, they want mercy and the law. Sorry, that's not the terms of that covenant. There's no mercy in law. You do this and you shall live, you break it, and it's death. God set those terms. We don't get to decide that. Any more than if I go kill someone and go stand before the judge and say, you know, I, I really didn't mean it, judge. I'm really actually a pretty good guy. You think the judge is going to let you walk out because you say you're a good guy and you didn't mean it? No. Neither will God. God is a relentless judge, and he will by no means let the wicked go unpunished. The scripture says, this is an a position to the new covenant, which was a covenant of promise or faith. Okay? It's contrasted to the new covenant. The new covenant was based on faith. If you remember in Genesis 12, the covenant with Abraham. Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's based on faith. Before the law was ever given, he was justified by faith. So why was the law given? The law was given as a covenant. It was purposed to show us our sin, not to declare us righteous. This is so important to understand. Romans 7, 7 says this, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. Paul said in Galatians 3, uh, really, the whole context is 19 through 29. I'm just going to read 23 and 24. Paul says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The guardian term their guardian was back in those days, wealthy people would hire a tutor, a guardian, to strictly discipline their children until the children came of age and were set free. That guardian was inflexible. The child gets out of line, he had authority to beat him. That's what the guardian did. That's what the law did for us. It relentlessly lashes out our conscience as we sin. It convicts us over and over and over and over. Why? Because it's imprisoning us so that when faith comes, we recognize my need for it, for a new and living way. The law was given to show us our sin. It was never given to declare us righteous, ever. Because when it searches our hearts, it finds no righteous thing by which to declare us righteous. All it finds is sin. That's all. The only exception to that was Christ himself. Well, how long is the law enforced? This is, this is probably one of the most important questions. How long are we under the law? How long is the law binding on people? Well, there's two answers to this. First, the law as a covenant was temporary. It's clear from scriptures. There's many scriptures. This is some of them. Romans 10:4. Christ Paul said, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In 2 Corinthians 3, 11-13, Paul said this. He's talking about the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Okay, For if what was being brought to an end, that's the Old Covenant, came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He says it twice. The law was being brought to an end. Even though it came with glory, there was an end to it. Galatians 3, 23 and 26 that we just read. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But here's the next verse I didn't include. But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. The law we're not under anymore when we come to Christ. Why? We've come of age. The law, there's no need for it anymore. By the way, I could have included in here the Old Testament references in Jeremiah and Ezekiel of a promise of a new covenant, right? One that would replace the Mosaic law over and over and over in the Old Testament. It's witnessed. But here's Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 10. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment, that's the law, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, people who say you got to keep the law never quote that verse. The law is weak and useless to make you righteous. Can't do it. That's why it's needed to be replaced. He says, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That better hope is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Hebrews 8, uh, 7 through 9 and 13, I don't think I have it on there, um, says this, For if the first covenant had been faultless, that's the law, if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he, that's God, finds fault with them when he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So God himself says there's going to be an end to the first one because I'm going to establish a new one. 
And it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So it's not like the law. This new covenant that replaces the law isn't like it. In fact, Paul said it this way. Just throw it out. He says, the law is not a faith. They're mutually exclusive. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, that's the law, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Again, legalists will never say the law is obsolete, but the writer of Hebrews does. The law cannot make you perfect. God sought to replace it because of its fault there. And he did replace it. And then Hebrews 10, 8, and 9, when he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings, these are offered according to the law. He then adds, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first, that's he does away with the law, in order to establish the second, that is the new covenant, the blood of Christ. He does away with the law, replaces it with the covenant of the blood of Christ. The second point is this, the the law only has authority over those who are living. This is so cool. I love this point. This is really, this point is really the secret to the fruitfulness of Christian living. Just as we sang, the wonderful cross bids us come and die to find that we might truly live. This is it. We who join ourselves to the likeness of the death of Christ will also be joined to the likeness of his life. But when we die with Christ, guess what? The law has no hold on us anymore. Because the law is only binding on those who are living. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 7. I'm going to read verses 1, 4, and 6, but I encourage you to read 1 through 6. Paul says this, Do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And he refers back there to Romans 6, 1 through 6. Go read it. So that you may belong to another. In other words, you might be freed from the law and belong to Christ, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. If you are a Christian, you've died with Christ, therefore you're not under law. The law is binding on only people who live. You no longer live. This is exactly what Paul says in Galatians 2, one of our favorite verses. For through the law, chapter 2, verse 19 says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, the term of the new covenant. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, he says, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And then Hebrews 9, I love this passage. Therefore, he is the mediator, this is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. Whose death redeems us from those curses? The death of Christ. And we are united with him in that death now. We've been redeemed from that law. For where, there, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For it will take effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. This is the same as our wills today. You guys who make wills for your children, when is that will going to be enacted? 
upon your death. The new covenant does not apply to anyone who still lives in the flesh. That's what Paul would argue, Romans 7 and 8. But if we come to Christ and we're united with him in his death, we also get his life and we're freed from the law. It doesn't apply to us anymore. So important to understand that. So what are the law's limits? Well, the law as a covenant was weak because of our flesh. We've considered this. I don't really need to. I do want to read the Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. It says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But if you're going to place yourself back under the law, guess what? You better offer bulls and goats. And you better do it every year. It doesn't take away your guilt. It doesn't purify you. All it does is buy time until judgment. That's it. But those are the terms. It was weak, not because it's not good. It's weak because we're of the flesh, sinful. It can't make you perfect. Does the law make anyone righteous? By this time, I hope it's clear. The law is powerless to make anyone righteous. The scripture is explicit about this. There's no provision in the law for overcoming our sinful flesh. There is a provision in the new covenant for overcoming our flesh. He's called the Spirit of God. Those who walk by the Spirit won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's many verses that talk about this. Hebrews 7, 11, and 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? It's referring to Christ. And this is, I love this. This may be beyond what you're interested in, but Christ was not a Levite, but it was the Levites appointed to be priests under the law. Christ was of the tribe of Judah. He's a priest according to Melchizedek, who was of the promise. You know what Hebrews goes on to say? For those who would want to bring you back under the law, Jesus couldn't even be a priest of the Levitical law because he's not a Levite. Jesus would never lead you under the law because he can't be a priest of that covenant. The terms of that covenant was you must be a Levite. He was of Judah, sorry. In other words, Jesus won't lead you back under the law. He can't. He doesn't meet its terms. But his covenant was a different one. A better one. Does that make sense? Might be too much for you, but that's okay. You're going to chew on this, I'm sure, for days and days, hopefully. So how does the law relate to the new covenant? Well, we just read it. The law relates to the new covenant as a type and a shadow of the things to come. It contained in it a shadow of the righteousness of God, but it could never deliver it. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. That is, Jesus offered himself. He didn't offer bulls and goats, right? Now, if he were on earth, here's what I just said. If he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He can't. He's not a Levite. 
The law serves as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, he concludes, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better because it's enacted on better promises. The covenant in the blood of Christ is better than the law because it affects the change and forgiveness we need. Do we still need to keep the law today? I will quote Galatians 5.1, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Does that answer it? No. Why? Because the law has been kept for you. Matthew 5.17 says this, Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The righteous requirements of the law were not ignored. It's just that we couldn't meet it. So what did Jesus do? He came, submitted himself to the law, fulfilled everything, even the punishment, which was death. So that there's nothing left of the old covenant that needs to be done. He fulfilled it. What do you have to do? Nothing. There's nothing for you to do. That's what grace is. Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus, including its penalty. All has been kept and paid by him. There's nothing more needing to be done. Therefore, what matters is faith in Christ. Why? Because Faith in Christ joins me to Christ. And when I'm joined to Christ, guess what benefits I get? All that righteousness, all that life, all that power to walk in a new living way. And that new living way will never lead me into sin. Never. When I walk in the Spirit, the new and living way, I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the fruit that the Spirit brings about in my life doesn't need law. Galatians 5.23. There's nothing against regulating love, joy, peace, as we've said. There's nothing left to be done for you. It's been done. That's why the gospel is so magnificent. Faith simply reaches out and takes hold. That's why the priority is of faith. Faith is the first and most important thing. Now, you see this formula in Scripture very often Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, Abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And rightly so. Love will continue on forever and ever. But the first thing is always faith, not love. If you think of it this way, think of a beautiful tree. I love oak trees. If I could plant one every five feet in my yard, I probably would. But I love their majesty. I love their size in looking at it all. But you know, as I'm looking at that beautiful tree, you compare that to the, the manifestation of love and grace, which is the epitome. That's what we want in the Christian life, right? But it's not the tree that supports itself. There's a root system. And that's faith. Without that root system, you have no foundation. Faith is first. It always is in Scripture. It is the most important thing. 
And when we talk about the gospel and we emphasize love before we emphasize faith in Christ, we confuse people. Because it's faith that joins people to their Savior and gives them the righteousness they need. And what blossoms in their life then is the love of Christ, the fruit of it. We must preach this gospel. If you do not trust in an active, living way the Savior, you will not have any life. You will not have any of the benefits of the new covenant that he's done for you. But by faith, you take hold of it, and it's all yours. He's done it. My favorite pastor, I often quote A.J. Gordon, said it this way, so radical is the change from law to grace that whereas under the first man was required to do in order to live, under the last he is made to live in Jesus Christ in order to do. So good. <laughs> so good. I was in his sermon, The First Thing in the World. In summary, I want to summarize these points. Christ fulfilled the law for our sake, both in righteousness and in death. All of its terms have been met. It's, it's finished, and it's been replaced by a better one. His blood is a new and better covenant replacing the old. We are no longer, therefore, under law, but under grace. Grace is the terms through faith. The righteousness of the law is now fulfilled in us who believe, produced by the Spirit working through, through faith. Paul said that explicitly. The Spirit leads us into all righteousness by joining us to Christ in his life. Go read John 15, for instance. Therefore, we are not under the law. For the fruit of the Spirit in our life needs no laws against it. So what we preach is not antinomianism. It's not disregard for the law. Rather, it's the law is brought about in a different way in us, a living way. It's not that the law is bad. It's good. But you know what? It's for, it's for bad people. If we are the righteousness of Christ, it's not for us. Because the Spirit of God leads us in all righteousness. The law was a ministry of condemnation and death. That's all it could bring. The new covenant, however, is a ministry of life and righteousness through the Spirit. Clear as mud. Let's go back to our text in Acts 15. And I'll try and wrap it up. So picking back up in our text. I'm sure they debated every one of those questions at this council. If I had to, no, I'm just kidding. I, I have no idea. But those are all issues related to it. So verse 22, back in our text, Acts 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions... It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off, verse 30 says, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. I want to talk about what happened here in this letter, because this is beautiful. Um, so James suggested those four issues that the, the Gentiles abstained from. Let's talk about what those are. Things polluted by idols, sacrificed idols, sexual immorality, what has been strangled and from blood. What are these and what are they referring to? Because this is, uh, to some who read it, they think, well, okay, they just concluded we don't have to be under law. Are they putting them right back under the law? No. This is so cool. This is beautiful, by the way. Three of those things deal with ceremonial issues that were very important to the Jews. Food sacrificed to idols, strangled, and from blood. All three of those are dietary requirements, right? The Jews, for instance, to, to remain kosher, couldn't eat food with blood in it. And especially, those, the, the food that was offered to idols, usually how it was killed was through strangulation. Even before the law was given, it was forbidden from the Jews to eat food like that. Now we know Paul, to the Corinthian church and to the church at Rome, said it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. Why? Because there is no such thing as an idol. Those, those foods offered to Zeus, guess what? Zeus doesn't exist. But not everybody has that knowledge and their conscience is afflicted. So what's he make it an issue of? Christian liberty, right? But he does argue, look, if eating food sacrifice idol makes your brother stumble, don't do it. So what's the church at Jerusalem asking the Gentiles to do? Be mindful of where we're at as Jews. These things are a stumbling block to us. Don't do them, please. Okay. Do you see the concession there? That's how churches come together in unity. The Jews had just conceded, okay, I guess you don't have to observe the law of Moses and be circumcised. Will you do something for us that's a stumbling block? Don't, when we're together as a fellowship, don't eat food in this way. My conscience is weak and I just can't get past it. Okay, because I love you, I'll do that. It's not that I'm under law to do that. I have freedom to do it. But out of love, I don't want to make you stumble. That's the issue. The fourth thing is sexual immorality. It should be obvious why they say, hey, don't do this. Part of it is because uh, the Gentiles came out of worship systems that included cult prostitutions. It's rampant. Not only that, the, the culture as a whole was just sexually pervasive. Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians 6 how joining yourself to a prostitute, for instance, causes you to become one with her. And do you not know that you're already one with the Lord? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't join yourself to a prostitute. Sexual sin involves more than just the one. It involves both. So it pollutes people. It derails their faith. The law in this sense is still valid. It's still sin. And you can call it such. 
Don't look to the law to deliver you from that sin. It can't, but it can tell you that's wrong. Don't do it. That was a major issue within the Gentile culture, and the church says stay away from sexual immorality of all kinds. It's a broad term because it will derail your faith. Paul would later write the same things in full agreement. I love how it says this. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. This is the goal of every debate we have doctrinally. We want to discern the mind of the Spirit of God. Some truths in Scripture, church, are difficult to discern. And it takes work. The problem with the American church is we're lazy. There's no other way to say it. We don't take time to know his word and search it out. The best thing that can happen to us is that some doctrinal issue comes in and scares us. Because you know what it'll do? It'll drive us to the word of God to start seeking answers. That's what's good. And it forces you to discern what the Spirit is telling us. That's why I took the time to deal with this issue today. So much of the New Testament is not understandable if you don't understand the law. That's what they were dealing with. That's why I wanted to lay it out as clear as I could. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that came to agreement on these things, right? They said that specifically. Having come to unity over these things. What a beautiful picture of what the church should be. They sent back not only Paul and Barnabas, they sent back two of their own men, Judas and Silas. Why? Yeah, Paul and Barnabas are going to tell you the same thing, but we also want to send two of our people so that you hear from them as well. Just a, just a gracious extra affirmation of these things. And Judas and Silas spent time there encouraging the brothers. Great joy was within the church. That is the end of every doctrinal outcome, hopefully. See, doctrine doesn't have to be divisive. But there are going to be things we divide over. This was one of them. If, if, if you go read Galatians, for instance, chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, I said that as a, as a reference. When you read that, Paul says, look, I went to Jerusalem to deal with this issue. And I had, I had, it had been reported that Peter and James were pillars. They weren't anything to me. They didn't add anything to my gospel. There's the tone in what he's saying is, look, if I go to Jerusalem and they don't agree with me, I'm ready to split. This is that serious. We know Peter and James didn't disagree with Paul. But Paul was ready to make his stand going to Jerusalem. He said, they didn't add anything to my gospel. I was standing squarely on it. Fortunately, it didn't end that way. But there are times when doctrinal division is serious enough where we cannot go that way. And we draw the line. This could have been one of those times, but the Spirit prevailed and brought them together in unity. They listened to the Word of God. They listened to how the, the apostles had experienced the outworking of the Word of God through Peter and Paul and Barnabas. And they listened to James, who listened to everyone and gave his judgment. Great passage for us. I'll call the worship team back up. If you have more questions about the law, come talk to me. It's still an issue today. You're going to be dealing squarely with this in your small groups tonight. Every question probes this issue deeper. So uh, 
maybe wait to call me till after small groups. You might have it answered there. Let's pray. Father, I do just thank you for your grace. It is wider, it's deeper, it's greater than what we can imagine. But we understand that there's nothing left for us to do. As you said yourself on the cross, it is finished. You've fulfilled all righteousness. You've met every demand, even the demand of death. Because sin had been committed by us, the law demanded payment, which was death. And you gave it. We are free, Lord. Thank you for the freedom. But Father, help us understand it's not freedom to live in sin any longer. It's the freedom to join ourselves to the living Christ and walk in a newness of life. A life of holiness. A life of righteousness and peace and joy. A life of fruitfulness to you. I know these are difficult issues for many. Lord, help us understand it. Be patient with us. Father, give us a zeal and a drive to search it out further. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.